The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Beryl Bell now presents his lecture, Fascinating Discussions of the Talmud. The name of the session is uh, Fascinating Discussions in the Talmud. So it's a real big problem because everything in the Talmud is fascinating. Um, but sometimes you need more of an introduction to see how fascinating it really is. And sometimes things are um, more easy to communicate. So um, rather than delving into the depth of the ideas of the Talmud, which you could really pick any few lines of any one of the Talmudic tractates, I thought of giving um, sort of a bit of a different uh, uh, dimension. So in general, um, the Torah in general and the Talmud included in that, sometimes people have a question about is everything meant to be taken literally or not? So you have in general in the Talmud, you have two different types of material. You have legal material, which is halacha, discussions of whether anything from family law to financial law, um, prayer, the holidays, and so on. And then you have what's called agadita, the agada, printed in a separate book in the Ein Yaakov. It was taken out many years ago with a separate type of commentary, which is not uh, exclusively legalistic in nature. It's more uh, lessons of how to live one's life. And let's just say it includes a very broad range of types of material, but what's common to it is that it's not legally um, focused. Uh, our sages said if you want to uh, understand the one who created the world, you have to learn this portion, the Agadita, you have to learn. The Baalatanya, the Alter Rebbe, said the majority of secrets of the Torah are hidden within this Agadita, this section. And sometimes you read some of these sections and they just seem so implausible that uh, the question arises, uh, it's stretching the imagination. Do we take it literally? Do we not take it literally? So this is a general sort of question. So the Agatha has, uh, there's all different levels. There's symbolic, there's allegorical, there's mystical. So the, the principle number one regarding anything which is a halachic discussion, if it's a discussion regarding Jewish law in practice, then it's meant literally. Okay? When we say a mezuzah, we mean a physical mezuzah. It's not a spiritual, symbolic concept. It's an object that needs to be put on the door and written in a proper way. There are a different set of rules that relates to the other areas of the Torah. So I'm going to be speaking about some of those areas in which there are different categories of, of, of things, some of it halachic and some of it from this agadada, as I'm uh, not really sure how to they translate it allegorical. It's not really an accurate translation. I don't think there's really a good corresponding English word. Um, but what I'm going to introduce the subject with is 
a um, sort of cautionary word. Because just because there are some things which are not meant literally doesn't mean that something doesn't fit your preconception. And it's difficult for you to swallow. So therefore you say, oh, it must be symbolic and it doesn't mean literal. So we have a, a, an example here. So in the Gemara Sanhedrin, um, Rav said that Daig and Achitefel, the two famous sages in the days of King David, asked 400 questions about a tower that floats in the air. Laws, if there's a tower floating in the air and you're inside the tower, so all different sorts of laws. Let's say you're a, just give an example, you're a Kohen. Kohen's not allowed to go into a cemetery. So let's say you're in a tower and the tower is floating in the air and it floats over a cemetery. Is it a problem? Now exactly what you're going to do about it when you're in the tower that's floating in the air is another question. Um, but the question, is this a problem or not? So that was maybe one of their 400 questions, another 399 to go. But we imagine, you know, this is the days of, um, of King David, okay? Even you, you know, don't have to go back thousands of years as it was in the days of King David. You can just go back, imagine a Jew in the shtetl who's learning Gemara, learning Talmud by a candle, and he said, yeah, when the tower is floating in the air. So for us, we don't understand the problem with the whole concept anyway. Now, so they would say, a tower floating in the air. I mean, let's not be silly now. Ridiculous, a tower floating in the air. So somebody, I didn't make this PowerPoint. I'm not so good at making PowerPoints, but somebody once upon a time for JLI made this for me. You see the tower floating in the air went around in a circle like that. That was pretty nifty, right? This is even better. <laughs> Does anybody remember Tower Airlines? Yeah, there was a Tower, Tower Airlines. Yes, I probably got that, got that title from the Gemara, from the Talmud. It actually happened once. There was a Jew. He was learning, I think it was in Sechta Nozir, about this uh, discussion. And yeah, so Perech Ba'avir, you have a tower that's flying in the sky, and he was on an El Al flight. And I think he was a Kohen also. And he looks down, he sees a cemetery. He says, wait a second, what does it say over there? <laughs> and he actually um, looked into it. It turns out it is a problem. And uh, he wrote to the chief rabbi of Israel who uh, wrote to El Al, and they changed their landing pattern. You go a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, you, fly, you know, look down, you're flying over the Mount of Olives. Well... So these um, things that were maybe seem preposterous to the people that read them, but you just hang in there long enough and everything becomes relevant, not only symbolically, but literally relevant. And just mention parenthetically, Rabbi Yisaf Albi wrote Sefer Ikrim, it's a major work on Jewish philosophy, said that the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai happened only once and it will never happen again. In the days of Mashiach, the Messianic age, is also not going to happen again. We got it once, and everything we need is there. Ha-fachba v'ha-fachba. Keep looking again into it and again into it, and you'll find everything eventually. And that's why all of the modern uh, cases and dilemmas, some of them, you know, people that were still here from Dr. Reichman, that uh, where do you find a source in Torah to deal with it? So if you look into it long enough, you'll find various sorts of things.
Okay. So just another example of things that people, uh, this was a, a letter from the, uh, that it's printed in Lukut HaSichas, from Lubavitcher Rebbe, somebody wrote to him, how do you expect me to take Torah seriously when it says that the sun is 170 times larger than the earth? Ramani's actually, I think, says 167 times larger than the earth. And as the science says that it's 1.2 million times larger than the earth. So how do you, if this is, what, this is what the Torah says, how do you expect me to take the Torah seriously? So the Rebbe, if anybody has spent time reading the Rebbe's uh, letters, they know how gentle and accepting and non-confrontational the Rebbe always was and was always writing. But over here, the person was really quite insulting. And uh, the Rebbe felt, I guess, he has to speak his language to make sure that he understands. And it's, uh, the Rebbe said that, um, like most questions that I get of this nature, not only the person is ignorant of the Torah, he's ignorant of science, too. And the Rebbe said, when science says that it's 1.2 million times, it's talking about volume, and the Torah is talking about diameter. And, and the Rebbe says, and by the way, if you're going to tell me that science says the diameter is not 170, it's only 130. So it's not only too, not too small, it's too large. He says, that's because the sun is not an absolute body, that it has a variation, and there's protuberance. There in Lakota Sichas, there's one word in the whole volume in English, English protuberance. Um, and uh, the Torah has a different definition of size when it comes to these things, and you could take a higher percentage and so on. So there, this was all sort of a cautionary note to the following presentation, that uh, just because things look like they're not right, so the first uh, um, likely culprit is our own lack of knowledge or understanding. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a, a different, not different ways of interpretation. So here is from a, a Talmudic tractate called Baba Basra, the chapter of Amechra Sasfina, and there's a few pages there of stories from Rabbi Barbarchana. And he's telling different stories, and you finish one story, and you shake your head, Okay, what's after this one? And then you read the next story, and you say, what? Then you read the next story, and like, you can walk around. My children, I used to read them the stories. They love these stories. They're like wild stuff. Okay, so we're going to tell you one of the stories from the Talmud, from Rabbi Barabachana. Okay, what's the story? Oh, excuse me. This slide was supposed to come first. This is a, the introduction, Maimonides, actually in his commentary to the Mishnah. And his son, the Maimonides' son, was named Avraham. So Rabbi Abraham, he wrote an introduction to the whole topic of this uh, agada, this non-halachic, uh, non-legal um, dimension of the Talmud. But here you have it from Maimonides' introduction to the, to, to the Mishnah. And he writes the three, three different types of people. He said, the first time they say, everything's literal. I believe in the Torah, and every word means exactly what it says under whatever conditions, and otherwise you're not uh, honoring the sages. And Maimonides says, they think they're honoring the sages, they're really degrading the sages. So he doesn't hold from the first group. Second group, 
They also say every word is literal. They say, hey, look at these foolish sages. Look at them saying this wild stuff. They deride, deprecate, and slander them. That's the second group. Okay, and the third group has a clear conception of the words of Teta. They know this superficial meaning, and there's deeper levels of meaning, and you have to have the proper tool in order to interpret everything in the proper manner. You know, it's, uh, I think it was Maslow that said that uh, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you only have one way of looking at things, you say, oh, you have to, uh, you know, you're a fireman. So you say, oh, you can't open it up. Here's an ax. That's how you open it up. Say, no, I just want to crack an egg. Like, we don't really need an ax to crack an egg. You're using the wrong tool, the wrong set of interpretive principles um, for the job. Okay. So now let's go to the story. Rabbi Barbachana said, I once saw a frog that was as large as Acre de Hagmonia. Acre de Hagmonia was a town that had um, 60 houses. So you saw a frog that was large as this town. Then a tannin, some translate that as a snake or a crocodile, came and swallowed the frog. A raven, yeah. If you ever took sign of the cyberspace a few years ago, yeah, I brought this case. Yeah. A raven came and swallowed the tannin. Yeah, pretty good, you remember the Talmud? From years ago. So the raven came and swallowed this tannin. Then the raven perched itself on a tree. So Rabbi Arachana says, ah, how great was the strength of that tree. Rapapa Barshmul said, if I hadn't been there, I would never have believed it. Good story, huh? Wow, wow is right. You got the frog, then a tannin, then a raven, and then a tree. And then, just in case you, you want to, you know, figure out what it is you drank before you read this, he says, if I wasn't there, I would never have believed it. Okay. So, again, my friends in the tech room made a made a visual of the story. So there you have the town, there you have the frog, here you have the tanim eating the frog. I love this, here came the raven, ate the tanim, then the raven goes on a tree. Ah, how strong the tree was. Okay. So the commentaries, Marshall, who's a classic commentary, who uh, he doesn't let anything go by, anything that needs explanation, and uh, all volumes of the Talmud come together with a marshal. You have a Rashi there on the page, and you have a marshal on the back. He says, what was going on over there? What was going on over there? Each one was representing a different kingdom, a different nation that had oppressed the Jews. Rabbi Barbachana lived under Roman domination, and he was not free to speak his mind. So he had to convey encouragement and lessons to his audience without being detected by the non-Jewish authorities. So as the marshal says that the frog represents the Greeks, the tanim, the crocodile, corresponds to the Romans, and the raven corresponds to, to the Muslim empire which, by the way, you have in the prophecy of Daniel, you have all the different, uh, the, the prophecy about the different nations that would subjugate the Jewish people. There's a whole discussion when it comes down to the toes. Is it the last kingdom the Christian kingdom, or is it the last one the Muslim kingdom? A whole discussion among the commentaries. I guess they're in the middle of working that out, the nations of the world. 
In any case, who's the tree? So the tree is the Jewish people. So each one was bigger and swallowed up the other one. And it wasn't like it was a little tiny frog either. It was a really big frog, Alexander the Great. And the Marsha, by the way, explains why Rabbi Barbachana picked a frog for the Greeks and why he picked each creature for the particular nation in terms of their characteristics. And look, imagine how a strong tree, everybody stands on them, all of these mighty creatures, and we're still st- hanging in there. See, Rabbi Rav, says, if I hadn't seen it myself, I'd never believe such a thing. Okay? So if you would go looking for this frog, then you're barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. That's not the proper way to understand the teachings of Rabbi Barbachana. They were not ever meant to be uh, literal. So it's a different way of looking at things. On the other hand, there are many things that people look at as being not applicable or um, questionable. And you look a little deeper or you wait around long enough till science catches up and then you see what it is, at least one of the possible meanings of what was being conveyed. So I'm going to give you a few examples over here. So here you have in Gemara Brachas, it's actually a commentary on the verse that we're going to be reading, not this coming Shabbos, but next Shabbos, um, in the Haftorah from the book of Isaiah, we have after Tisha B'Av, you have seven Shabbosim before Rosh Hashanah, and it's called Shivat and Nechemta, and there are seven prophecies from the book of Isaiah about the Messianic age. Next week starts off that the Jewish people says to God that you have abandoned us. So the Talmud quotes this statement the, the Jewish people, Isaiah was saying on behalf of the Jewish people to God. And the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Knesset Yisrael, the congregation of the Jewish people, my daughters, I don't care about you. Twelve mazolis I've created in the sky, the twelve constellations, stars. And for each mazol I created 30 chil, too small over here, forgot the names of all them, yeah, for each chil he created 30 legions. legions. For each legion he created 30 ratans. For each ratan is 30 cartons. For each carton, 30 gastra. And for each gastra, there's a group of 10,000 stars and 365,000 groups of these 10,000 stars. A lot of stars. All of them I have created only for your sake. The Jewish people would be blessed like the stars of the sky. So the Talmud says, how many stars are in the sky already? You know, in the days of the Talmud, you know, the Greeks were big experts in the skies. They had the best ways, and they cataloged all the stars in the sky. How many stars are visible in the sky? 9,000 or something? Um, without um, various observing implements that were developed later on. Okay, but this is a lot of stars. How many stars is it? So if you make the calculation, 12 times all those 30s, times 365,000, you end up with a number like that. Okay, so that has 18 digits. Okay, 18 places. So like you, you count when you get to numbers that are too long to read like this, when you get past the billions and trillions and zillions or whatever it is. So then you start saying 10 to the 18th power, which was with the 18 zeros after it, and so on and so forth. So this has 18 places. So now, um, with a Hubble telescope and various ways of uh, getting to the zeros. Right, 
Right, that's, every time you do that, you put another zero on it. You put another zero. 10 times 10 is 100, times 10 is 1,000. You keep multiplying it by 10. You don't, it's not squared. It's not squared, it's uh, times 10, whatever. It's not a math class, it's a lot of stars. <laughs> it's a lot of stars, it's, 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 it's a real, that's a real lot of stars. And you have a lot of people that know a lot more about astronomy and math than I do you know, comparing this. So um, the latest numbers, there's a whole discussion, because you can't really count anything that that's um, in that ballpark. And remember, we're talking about when this was said, the maximum you could observe was 9,000. So we're in a completely different category here altogether. In any case, they are extrapolating based on you take a little piece of the sky and then you count or you take a galaxy and then you count and you say what's the observable universe and how many galaxies can we see and how many you know light years are you going to go billions of light years whatever the case is and figure out and you extrapolate so the extrapolations i see was either 10 to the 19th power or 10 to the 21st power but we're not in the category of 9000 now anybody that would have looked at this um, when they heard the number 9,000, it's also more than they could uh, really imagine. But, you know, clearly if you would say that this is just an exaggeration to make uh, the Jewish people feel good, so it's uh, somewhere which is in the ballpark. Here's another example here. So, Psachim, I have a little pointer here. Fine. No, different example, something from the field of Jewish law. So it says, maybe I'll go first to this case here. I'll go to this case here. So once in a soda factory, I do some kosher supervision from time to time. And um, we had to kosherize the factory for Passover use for soda. So the flavors are, uh, everything's made in advance, and then you have to, you store it, and then you add it to the carbonated water, and then you have to put in color because it's all so concentrated, all the soda comes out clear. And to make a, it turns out that there was one ingredient there that was a Passover problem. It was very interesting because in order to make the soda look alive, you know when soda looks flat, it's been sitting out too long, so it looks like it lost all its bubbles and it's like syrup. But that's not why, because there's something in there that makes it look lively somehow. And that ingredient, they had to find a, a substitute for it. They can't, not going to sell the soda without that, so they had to find a kosher for Passover substitute for it. Whatever the case is, they said, okay, we have to, this plant is not kosher for Passover. We have to kosherize it. Okay, well, let's kosherize. Fine, how do you kosherize? So to kosherize, they said, well, we have to put everything in boiling water. They said, well, we have these uh, stainless steel barrels. You know, about each barrel, say, like this high and this wide. And they say, we have hundreds and hundreds of these barrels to store our flavors. We can't put that in boiling water. How are you going to do that? I said, well, yeah, we've done it before. We'll show you. Yeah, but it's too many, and it's dangerous, and uh, the union won't let us. And they made all different sorts of, uh, okay, call the supervised. Call supervised, explains you, but rabbis, you don't understand. We're under government supervision. Everything over here is sterilized, and everything is clean to the, to the, to, to the nth degree and everything. You don't have to worry about any remnant of anything. It'll be totally, totally clean. And we say, yes, yes, it's very nice. But it has to go into boiling water for it to be kosherized. Fine. So next supervisor had a QC, quality control. The guy knows what's going on most in the factory probably. Anyway, so we end up with the owner of the factory. So everybody up to this point was not Jewish. The owner of the factory was Jewish. 
Okay, rabbis, there must be some misunderstanding here, said he irritably. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so he explained his side, and then we explained our side, and we had this semi-conversation. Um, and then finally he just exploded. You know, you medieval! You know. <laughs> You don't accept anything scientific, and you're living in the dark ages, and so on and so forth. Okay? Does that mean you don't want the hekshev? Anyway. Uh, so we had our chemist took him on the side. He said, let, us, let me explain to you. He says, the whole problem is, according to the Torah, you cannot uh, eat certain foods. And even if the taste of that food was absorbed in another food, excuse me, absorbed in a utensil, if that taste goes into something else, we can't eat that either. So once that taste of the flavor gets absorbed here, it's a non-kosher, non-kosher for Passover flavor, we're going to put our kosher for Passover flavors in there, and it's going to ruin everything. So we have to get that taste out, and we have a tradition how it is where they do that. Our Torah tells us how to do that. And the guy went silent. And he says, you know something that's very, very interesting? He said, because in our business, we found that once we use one of these barrels for one flavor, we have to dedicate it to that flavor. Because if we use it for root beer, even after we sterilize the barrels, if you'll put orange flavor in it, it'll ruin the flavor of the orange. So it has to be labeled for root beer, and then you have to keep it root beer forever. And you have to take the orange label for orange forever. So we said, okay, give it to us, and you'll be able to rotate your barrels. Okay, and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> they ended up getting new barrels, whatever the case was. So this is something that um, it actually has its origins. You have in the, we read a few weeks ago in the Torah at the end of the Book of Numbers when there was a war against Midian. So, it, uh, so the commandment was given that when they took the spoils of war, that as far as the metal utensils are concerned, gold, silver, copper, iron, tin, or lead, if anything was used with fire, put it over fire, put it through fire, and it will become pure. And whatever was, was not used over fire must be brought in water, boiling water. And the Talmud discusses this commandment. Why in the world do you have to do that? What's the purpose? So it's discussing the Talmudic uh, phrase is called tam ke'ikr, the taste of the food has the same status as the food itself, not imitation bacon bits. Okay, it's the actual bacon itself, that flavor when it's absorbed in a utensil, that you can't use the utensil. That's why you need separate milk and meat dishes. Okay, it's not to be fancy. It's because the taste of the meat, if you, if you take a cheeseburger, if, excuse me, if you take a, a cheese sandwich, a melted cheese sandwich, a kosher melted cheese sandwich, and you fry it in a meat frying pan, so that since there's the taste of the meat in the frying pan that mixes with the cheese that you made, and that's prohibited like eating milk and meat. So therefore you need separate ones. That's the whole idea behind it. So that Talmud is discussing where does this apply? So Rabbi Kiva said, we can derive this case right from over here with the utensils of Midian. They only absorb the taste, but they're still prohibited. You weren't allowed to use them until they were put through fire or put through water. Okay, so, so in, in terms of the verification, not every soda factory does that, by the way. It depends how you produce it and how long you keep it and different factors. But just an interesting thing, um, I spoke to some chefs who spoke about using different pots and being careful, but I found this 
looked around and asked around where I could find this. This I found in a food safety manual was talking about proper washing of stainless steel utensils in order to avoid dangerous bacteria. So they put it under an electromagn uh, magnif magn whatever magnifying uh, uh, a tchotchke. Uh, um, yeah. You all know what I'm talking about. They looked at it really up close. Okay, so over here you can see it's dyed. So you can see these, what looks to us to be like flat stainless steel is under such magnification, all um, with ridges and mountains. And they dyed this to show that if you don't wash it properly, this big pink thing here is a certain type of uh, bacteria. His name is given over there. But what interested me is all these little orange things over there. And they are all particles of food. And that's even, you would look at a, this was washed. This was washed with soap, okay, cold water, soap and cold water, totally clean to the eye and to the touch. But there's still food. So, for example, the sense of smell, when you open up a jar of cinnamon and then you're able to smell it, so how exactly does that happen? There are particles of cinnamon that are too small to be uh, detected with the sense of vision, but the sense of taste, the smell is able to pick them up. Similarly, very small amounts of food that are not visible to the naked eye, your, sense, your taste buds can detect. And just like our common experience, you fry some onions in a pan, then you clean it, and you end up with some taste of the onions there later on too. Question? Why cold Why did they wash it? That's just what they did. I'm not saying you should. If it was boiling water, then we would have no more of these uh, the orange pieces of food there. It's exactly the point. Thank you very much. I'd like to go further. We have one of the 613 commandments is that when there is a particularly dangerous situation that uh, special prayers are recited, the chauffeur is, is uh, blown, and Sefer HaMitzvah is positive commandment number 59. A fast day is proclaimed, and the, there's a whole tra Talmudic tra tractate called Tainis, which is the Hebrew word for a fast, and it speaks about many of these cases. There's no rain, there's a drought, and so on. So um, it defines how serious um, does the problem have to be if you're surrounded by an enemy army when they start getting close. Like, when do you, when do you start proclaiming a fast? Okay, at what point? So one of the things that's discussed over there is a plague. It discusses a plague. So over here in Gemara Tainus. So it says that if people are dying, and it says a city of this size, if three people, just 500 people in the city and three people die over this much a period of time, and it gives definitions of how severe it has to be before it reaches the level that you declare a fast day. If, it, however, the plague is only among the animals and people are not affected by the plague, then you don't declare a fast day. That's what the Talmud says. And then, so if it attacks animals, you don't declare a fast day. But, but out of Yehuda, it tells a story. They said that there was a plague among the swine. The pigs are dying from a plague. And he declared a fast day. So the Talmud asks, so what's going on over here? We just made a statement that you don't worry about plague among the animals. And here there was a plague among the pigs. And he declared a fast day. So does he disagree with the previous principle? Or does he say pigs are different? 
So the Talmud explains it's different. Pigs are different. In the case of swine, it's exceptional because their intestines are like those of human beings. Meyayu is the inner organs of the pig are like those of a human being. So um, actually, when they do um, heart valve replacement, for example, the, the, the choice, the first choice is that of a, is that of a pig. Insulin, many different uh, cases, it turns out that the uh, um, uh, best match for a human being, curiously enough, is a pig. It took a while of experimentation, but they always could have opened up to Gamorotinus and they would have figured this out themselves. It's another case. Yeah. Fine. Haley's Comet was discovered by who? Haley, very good. Haley. So Haley lived uh, not that long ago. Um, Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua lived a very long time ago. Okay, they were um, from the days of the Mishnah, even before the Gemara. And uh, Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua were on a ship. Rabbi Gamliel had bread, and Rabbi Yeshua had bread and flour. Rabbi Gamliel's bread was finished. He ran out. So they had flour. The bread wouldn't keep that long, but the flour kept longer. So Rabbi Yeshua was planning on a longer... On, in other words, they both knew how long the journey was supposed to take. But Rabbi Yeshua figured it would take longer than Rabbi Gamliel realized. So he packed differently. And he took flour instead of just bread. He said to him, how did you know we would be delayed so long that you brought uh, flour that it shouldn't spoil as fast as bread? So he answered, there's a star that rises every 70 years. And it misleads those who lead the boats. And it's time for this star that comes once every 70 years. My calculations indicate that it's time for this star to appear. And since all the navigation is done by looking at the stars, then we're afraid that the people are going to get misled and we're going to get lost and the trip is going to take a longer period of time. Perhaps it will rise and mislead us. And evidently that's what happened because they were there on the boat for uh, too much time. But here we have a star that um, had such regularity that Rabbi Rabbi Shua was able to predict its coming. So we don't know any other star that reappears every 70 years like Halley's Comet. So he obviously didn't call it that, but it's a good chance. That was being done. One last um, passage from this genre, if you want to call it that. There's a Gemara in Veda Zora that says, uh, it's speaking about um, medical care on the Sabbath. So we know that when a life is in danger, that all the laws of uh, the Sabbath are set aside. So normally you can't drive a car on Shabbos, but if a life is in danger, you have uh, those laws are set aside in order to save a life. But sometimes it's clear, and sometimes it's not so clear. Something might not look like it's so, so dangerous, and especially with the medicine was not, so, uh, not as advanced in those days. So there's a section there in the Talmud where it's defining different types of uh, conditions that are considered to be life-threatening. And it describes... Uh, a, a problem with the eyes. And then it says, why is an eye um, condition 
considered to be life-threatening? And what kind of eye condition is it talking about? So there's a whole discussion later on, this type of eye condition, that type, all different descriptions of different problems with the eyes. But the first question is why is a problem with the eyes considered to be a life-threatening condition? So it says, The shrine of the eyes are attached to the heart. So now we got a connection between the eye and the heart. Who's making the connection? Dushuraini. Who are they? So the fact is, we don't really know too much about shuraini. It seems to be that the translation means some sort of strands, like strings, connecting the eye to the heart. And um, it actually, uh, um, you know, it happened uh, so once in a discussion, there was someone that had a had, uh, it was brought to the hospital right before Shabbos with a burn on the top of their hand. And it says in the same Talmudic passage that uh, um, burn on top of the hand, an injury, al-gabar-regal, is considered to be a life-threatening situation. So it turns out the person was able to get back to the house before Shabbos, but uh, later when my, my teacher, Rabbi Zekshvei Oliver Sholem, were discussing this, uh, this case. It was Friday night in Shul, and there was a doctor there. So as he always did when I would ask him a question, he would respond with a very long list of similar questions um, and broaden the inquiry. And he said, and what are you going to do about other things that the Talmud says? And it's brought, not just in Talmud, it's brought in Jewish law. This is legal. After Rabbi Babachan, everything I brought you was legal here, to be taken literally. So he said, but and, and modern medicine doesn't have any, uh, any uh, clue about any sort of connection or what this means. And he listed a whole bunch of cases. And then he listed this case that it says that the eye is connected with the heart. What kind of connection with the eye and the heart? So the doctor says, what does it say there? So he repeated. He says, you know, that's very, very interesting. Because they, they discovered, any doctors here? Any doctors in the audience? So there's a nerve, the oculocardiac reflex, he told us. Seems it's the vagus nerve that there's a connect, special connection between the eye and the heart. And when they do eye surgery, they have to correct for it because it could possibly cause heart problems in the middle of the surgery. So there's a special connection between the eye and the heart. So my teacher looked at me and said, see, he just answered our question. You know, when did they discover that? That was relatively uh, recently in terms of medical history. And the Talmud said this has this connection between the two of them. Okay, so up till now, uh, we have around 10 minutes left. So up till now, everything I've been doing has, except for the beginning, has been legal. But I have something else which is, uh, I guess, special for our generation. And I'm sure many of you have uh, heard something about this in the past, about the Talmud describing the state of the world right before Mashiach comes. Just raise your hand if you're familiar with this passage. Nobody? Two places in the Talmud, once in Tractate Sanhedrin, which has a whole discussion about the world to come and about Mashiach and all different sorts of things of that nature, very long discussion. Then you have it again at the end of Tractate Saita, the very last page. And I'll just take the one from Saita. There are some details that vary, but it's, um, you know, everybody's here at the retreat. I don't know how much 
You used to be people, you to get the news, you needed a newspaper, a radio, or something like that. Today, everybody walks around with in their pocket, they have all the news, and they can get themselves stressed out by reading all the news um, about what's happening in the world. But if you don't have that, you just carry around with you, attracted in a tunnel, and you can read the news there to see what's happening <laughs> with the world. Okay, so here's the, this is where it is in Sanhedrin. So I'll just I'll take a, a line or two from Sanhedrin, page 97a. Rabbi Yechonet says, in the generation when Mashiach, the son of David, comes, Mashiach ben David, Torah scholars will decrease. And what does it mean, Torah scholars? Talmid chachamim. Talmid chachamim. It's very interesting. Talmid chachamim. There's an introduction to Rechavaz Das. He was a very famous uh, legal commentary who explains that Talmud chacham. Why didn't you call him a chacham? A chacham means a sage. Talmud chacham means the student of a sage. Why didn't you call him a sage? Why do you call a sage a Talmud Chacham? He says, because if he's really a proper uh, sage, then he has to have humility, that he's a student. He's not just telling everybody, he's absorbing knowledge, he's always learning, and he's always growing. And his humility also gives him the power of leadership. So it's not just enough, sure, there's a lot of uh, keulim and shivas and places full of people, but the Torah leadership... Where, where, where do we have that, and where do we have the humility? In any case, that's the, they're decreasing. That's the, that's the Torah scholars. The rest of the people, their eyes fail with sorrow and grief. Troubles increase. New harsh decrees will appear. And before the first passes, the second quickly comes. You get over with one thing, and then you get another problem. You get finished with that problem, then comes another problem. They come one after another after another. Now, I don't want to make everybody depressed. I see there's a whole mental health section from this, um, this retreat. So if you need somebody to talk to, there's plenty of people around. But why is it that we're told about all of these signs of the deterioration of the situation of the world is, well, there are a number of explanations. I'll give you two. First of all, if you see it happening, then you shouldn't despair because everything's going downhill. So, like, what's happening? The whole world is cracking up. The whole thing is just disintegrating before our eyes. So don't lose hope. That's exactly what it says is going to happen. And there's something which is even more than that. We'll see it more in the next section. This is the Maralmi Prague says it many, many places. He has a theme, and the Maralmi Prague was a great Jewish thinker. Wrote many, many books, and he discusses this in a number of his works. And he says that if you want to grow from something one size to something a little bigger, so then you grow on it and become a little bigger. But if you want to make something which is an incomparable level of growth, then you can't get there like that. So if you want to take an apple seed and turn it into an apple tree, what has to happen to the seed? You have to put it in the ground, and you have to wait until it totally rots away. The whole thing, you can't make the new incomparably greater existence on the old rotten existence. You have to wait until it disappears. And that's the dis disintegration of societal mores and values that uh, we're soon going to read about. And he says, and that's why it's happening. And that's what's behind all. And he explains each one of their great length, can't go into it. Very, very fascinating discussion from the Maral. So here you have it, and this is the very last page. Gemara Seita, from here to here. Let's go through one at a time, or a few at a time will take. 
And it says, Be'ikvasid the Mashiach, the Talmud says over here. Be'ikvasid the Mashiach means the heels of Mashiach. It's like we're the last generations. Like we're the last ones. We're the ones that are, we're the only ones that are still standing. Somebody once asked, you know, we have so many great people, great generations in Jewish history. So why are we going to be the ones that merit the coming of Mashiach? So the simple answer is because we're the only ones still around. It's up to us, you know, like we're the ones that are still here. So that's it, the heels, like to the bottom of the body. The body keeps, you know, you got the head, and you got the shoulders, you have the heart, and it keeps going down. You end up with the heel, okay, that's us. The heels of Mashiach. So what's going to happen? Okay. Chutzpah yaske, there will be a lot of chutzpah. Excuse me, chutzpah will increase. One for one. Prices will soar. Prices will soar. And the same Marsha that I mentioned before, he looks uh, at the wording of it, because the same thing is there in Tractates and Hedron, and he analyzes the words, and he says that sometimes prices go up because there's no supply. In other words, there are natural causes for it. So there's a, a drought. So there's a drought, so then there's not so much wheat. And since the laws of supply and demand drive up the prices, so then the prices increase. He said, that's not the wording that's used over here. He said, this is a man-made disaster, he says. This is man-made inflation. Okay, I'll leave it to all the political scientists who (laughs) discuss this over supper. Okay, number three. The vine will yield its fruit, yet wine will be expensive. Okay, the fact is, I also worked, as I mentioned before, in the cautious world, you know, there's a lot of grape juice that's showing up in all different sorts of things for the last number of years because they don't have enough demand, I guess, for the wine. There's plenty of the grapes are giving, but they have to keep the price of the wine up. In fact, food, I, I don't know what's doing now, post-COVID and Ukraine and all of this, but all the great food producers of the world were burning food in order to whole artificially inflate the prices to keep them up so the farmers shouldn't go out of business. So um, that's something which um, most people, I think, have a difficulty understanding that some people are starving and they're busy burning food, but I guess the distribution, political problem, whatever it happens to be. Any case, so that's as far as the prices. Next, the governments will turn, it's the government, it's plural, will turn to heresy and totally give up any idea of faith and totally deviate from that. Okay? No one is capable of giving rebuke. So it'll keep going down, downhill and nobody can say anything. Doing so good so far or bad, however you want to call this. Just keep going. Okay? The places of gathering will be used for immorality. Okay. What happened to theater, to libraries, houses of government, Things they're allowing. The wisdom of the scholars will degenerate. What's the Lashon Excuse me. Tisrach means it rots away, like it becomes rotten. Degenerate means like it, it, it disappears. Um, those who fear sin will be despised. So if you're a God fearing person, you don't want to sin, so then everybody makes fun of you. I gave this one its own slide. Truth will disappear. The Maral explains this as follows. 
What does it mean truth will disappear? It doesn't mean there'll be a lot of people telling falsehoods. Okay. He says it's much, much worse than that. He said the whole concept of truth will disappear. When you have falsehood, that means you have at least a concept of truth. Because, you know, this is false, and then this is true. You can argue about, is it false, is it true? Which one is it? At least you can have a discussion about it. But if there's no such idea, no such concept as truth, then there's nothing but to talk about. So in terms of relativism, this is true for you, and this is true for me, and there's nothing, there's no more absolutes anymore. Okay? Everything is, everything is relative. So for you, this is, uh, you know, if, if you decide that uh, this is in keeping with your individual concept of right and wrongs, then that's right for you. And this is true for you, and this is true for that. And, and so the whole idea of saying that there's something, something, anything that's absolute has disappeared from the world. The fact is it really hasn't dis disappeared from the world. And this is really, I think, uh, would be a good subject for another lecture, but I'm not giving that lecture now, is that the founder of relativism, you know, it's always bothered me. I teach college students in the summer, and it's always such an obstacle. And finally, some, I got one Russian mathematician who, like, really pushed me. I have to thank him for this insight. I have to get to the bottom of this, and I found it. The sociologist who founded relativism said, everything is relative. That is the only absolute. Je répète, as they say in Quebec. Everything is relative, and that's the only absolute. Okay? So if you say that not everything is relative, it's really crazy when you think about it for a second. Okay, I believe in absolute truth. I don't say everything is absolute. I think some things are relative and some things are absolute. Yeah, there are some things that are absolutely wrong. There are some things which are absolutely right. And there are some things that depends on the situation, you know. Some things are relative to the circumstance. But the person that, that's a relativist, is there anything that's relative? Everything is relative. Is there anything that's absolute? Nothing is absolute. So who's the absolutist here? The relativist is the absolute. You can't talk to them. Because they know, it's, okay, you're a religious fanatic, okay, but I believe I'm enlightened. And whatever I believe is right. Because truth has disappeared. Not that people are telling things which are not true. They don't believe in the whole idea of truth. But the fact is they do, they just don't say it. Because everything is relative. And that's an absolute truth, and you can't move without that. Okay, I'm running out of time here. So we have a whole list of things I guess I have to sort of run. Um, Youths, this is a societal thing. Youths will shame the elders. Elders will rise in deference to the young. The son will revile his father. A daughter will rise up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's family will become enemies. The son will not feel ashamed before his father. And I like this one. This one I also gave its own slide. Pnei hader kelev. The face of the generation will be like the face of a dog. This really doesn't need any commentary. The leaders, you know, like, leaders, you know, please. But it's not only that. Every bastion of, used to be a place where people could respect. Okay, so we did away with the government a long time ago. That, of course, you know, that's okay. Talk about the elected officials. Okay, next. Medical community. Well, how's the trust in the medical community doing today? Next. Next, 
What about trust in the legal community? What about the Supreme Court? Next. What about the scientific community? Okay. So the, the, the leadership, you know, there's a brand of cell phones in Montreal called Fido. That's the name of the brand. When they first came out with the brand, so they did an advertising blitz, and I, I regretted, I should have taken pictures of all of them. Yeah, there was the, before the days of cell phones, it was a long time ago. I mean, that was a cell phone, but they didn't have smartphones taking pictures and things like that. So they had all their billboards. They had a face of a person with a face of a dog, and they matched them. It's so like you had this Afghan with the long hair next to a woman with the, like, the long hair. And then they had like a bulldog with some boxer who looked like this. And they had, it was just like the face of the, the generation were like dogs. Okay, that's not what it means. There's a very famous explanation that said from the name of Yisrael Salanter. So what does it mean that the face, of the face of the generation means the leaders will be like dogs? Why is that? When a person walks their dog, who walks in front? The person or the dog? The dog goes in front. The dog goes in front, okay? So, so if you look at it, it looks like the dog is leading, right? But who's really leading? The, 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 the owner of the dog is leading. The dog runs off, let's say he's running off the leash. So he runs ahead, then what does he do? He looks back, makes sure he didn't lose his master. He's leading, but he wants supper, right? So he's like, not getting too far away. See, he's out over there in front. He's always looking back and see, is my master happy with where I'm going, okay? So he said, that's what it means. People are not going to lead. The leaders are not going to lead because of leadership and what they believe is right. They're going to lead based on what the people are going to be happy with. Remember the Rebbe once said this about the elected officials. He says, elected officials are experts at only one thing, and that's getting elected. Okay? Doesn't mean they have to be... Uh, Experts at anything else, but that they must be they must be experts. Otherwise, they don't get elected and that's why they're looking at the polls So what's gonna get me elected? So then, then everybody complains you built a system like this You made a political system like this and then you complain that, that uh, This year you said that this issue was okay then the same issue a year later You said it's not okay then a year later you said it's okay Then you said in the same year you're saying to this audience It's okay, and this one it's not okay because you play the polls and that's the way the face of the generation are like dogs because they're not leading, they're looking back. And the final, uh, somebody sent me this picture. I like the pearls. I think it's appropriate, you know, the people becoming wealthy on whatever. Uh, taxes. In any case, and then it concludes, so who can we rely? We can rely on our Father in heaven because ultimately that all of these signs of the preparation you know, before you uh, plant a field, you have to plow it. You have to take away whatever uh, growths have been, been accumulated over there. And it's our um, privilege and responsibility to lend a hand and to add on in acts of goodness and kindness and to add on in doing mitzvahs and add on in, uh, in learning Torah. You know, the Rebbe told CNN uh, when he was interviewed, I don't know if you ever saw the video, and... Uh, the Rebbe was uh, speaking constantly about Mashiach, so a reporter came from CNN, he asked, what is the Rebbe's message to the world about Mashiach? And uh, the Rebbe answered that people should increase in acts of goodness and kindness. So the guy said, okay, you got his 10 seconds of fame, you know, so like, 
Now, go on, let the rest of the people in line go by. So, no, you don't want to say anything. So, people should do acts of goodness and kindness to bring Mashiach? So, somebody like me said, Yeah, didn't I just say that? No. They said, so, the Rebbe didn't say that. The Rebbe said, A little bit more and I'll come immediately. A little bit more. I, everybody did a lot. A little bit more. Whatever it is, a little bit more. And that's the message for the world and for Jewish people. It's also goodness and kindness, and it's also. Very, it means checking mezuzahs before Rosh Hashanah, making sure all the doors, not just checking this, making sure that all the doors that need a mezuzah have a mezuzah, the men checking their tefillin. And uh, tell once a story, there was a person who went into the, pre- uh, Rabbi Epstein didn't give me the hook yet, so that means I keep speaking. Ah, oh, why didn't I talk, <laughs> Rabbi Epstein, why didn't I talk about Mashiach? I'm talking about Mashiach the whole time, I say, Rabbi Epstein, you walk in. <laughs> anyway, the story, so this person went into the previous Rebbe, and he was going off to war. And uh, the previous rabbi said, you should uh, take a coin. He gave him a coin. And he said, you should sh- sh- sow this into your tzitzis, into your talus cotton. So then the guy walked out. And he went to one of the rabbis. He says, I don't understand what the rabbi told me. He says, I don't wear a talus cotton. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.